Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Since 2015, the European migrant crisis has seen millions of refugees and economic migrants fleeing into the continent. Some warned the mass migration would have a severe impact on European societies. Ayan Hirsi Ali was one of those who witnessed life on both sides. She herself was an immigrant, born in Somalia and raised in the Middle East, only to move to the Netherlands to escape an arranged marriage. Her journey saw her become a vocal critic of the religion she once preached, Islam, and she became a major women's rights activist. During her career, she has seen a colleague beheaded and has had to live with security guards in secret locations for much of her life. My name is Stephen Edgington for The Telegraph, and today we'll be discussing her latest book about the impact of the migrant crisis on sexual violence in Europe. Let's start by talking about immigration into Europe, which is what your book is about. What has changed in Europe since 2014? The number of people coming into Europe asking for asylum from the Middle East, Africa and South Asia has just gone up. Uh, in some ways you would say not much has changed. That's, that has been happening since the 1990s. It's just the volume. Can you talk about some of the statistics so that viewers can get a good idea of the monumental change in Europe since 2014? I think that you would say the biggest surge was in 2015. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I have them all in detail in the book. And also there have been several updates. So I I won't be able to give you the number, the detailed numbers, but I, I've written about those. And the book was due to be published in 2020 in June. And since then, again, the numbers have changed. But we're talking about millions of people here. We're not talking about thousands or even hundreds of thousands. I think I saw that three million illegal immigrants have come into Europe since 2009. So can you talk about the impact that has on Europe, especially from young men who are coming from Africa, coming from the Middle East? What is the impact that that has on European society? So yes, you're right. We are talking about the millions and hundreds of thousands, and yet that's exactly dramatic surge that we have seen. What is the impact of that? I think when you look at, there's a small number of people who have been coming from those countries, Middle East, Africa, 
South Asia who are well assimilated and they are law-abiding, just wonderful people who do their very best when they come into different parts of Europe. But we also are seeing a large number of young men unaccompanied by families between the ages of 15 and about 35. And that male youth bulge is causing problems that are comparable to the ones that such a bulge would be causing in the countries of origin. My book zooms in on the issue of sexual violence against women, but we're also seeing all other types of crime and grime. So to the average European who lives in London or Munich or in Paris, what would the impact be on them on their day-to-day life? Well, it depends, first of all, on where you live. If you find yourself in a working-class neighbourhood, your life will change dramatically. You will be confronted with some of the unintended negative consequences of an immigration that is unplanned, ad hoc, and uh, of that magnitude. For young women, they are finding that the streets are unsafe for them, that the transport systems are unsafe, that the schools are unsafe. But it's not only young girls and women who are affected. It is really pretty much everyone. If you are an older person, then you see a rise in crime. And I think all of this could have and should have been expected. What may be surprising to some of the locals is that the governments that have allowed this to happen are in fact doing nothing about these unintended negative consequences. And it's all now on the shoulders of those working class neighbourhoods. Can you describe some of the events in Europe which have happened since 2015, which were underreported at the time? So, for example, I'm thinking about the mass sexual assault on women in Germany on New Year's Eve, where hundreds of women were assaulted by young men. So can you talk about some of those events since 2015 that people haven't really been talking about? The event of New Year's Eve 2015-2016 was pretty stunning because it was a large number of men, many of them, asylum seekers, but many of them also local residents who had been there of immigrant heritage, but they had been in the country for much longer. And they had then as a group, some of it was spontaneous, some of it was, there might be some conspiracy theory to it, but they started to surround Hunt for Young Men, that's where also the name of the book Prey comes from. And they were, they just engaged in sexual assault that ranged from uh, touching women and being menacing and harassing to rapes and gang rapes. And again, I want to keep going back to the failure of the authorities, A, to prevent that event from happening, but after it happened and trying to sweep it under the carpet. And you've seen events like that, concerts in Sweden, but also very low level, you know, groups of men in acting in twos, threes, fours and more, uh, looking for women, any woman, really, and then uh, harassing, groping, occasionally raping, and sometimes it even led to homicides. And almost all of these crimes are committed by individuals who arrived during this 2015 surge. Can you describe the response from European governments to these crimes? One word for that is disappointing in terms of enforcing the rule of law, of protecting the victims uh, from these types of crimes and uh, on the long term the complete and utter failure to address the issue of immigration on a large scale and the process of integration. So it's just complete failure. There are exceptions of course. A country like Austria, Denmark, these countries have really assessed the problems and decided that they were not going to pretend the problems don't exist 
and they came up with a set of policies supported by their populations to deal with the issues. But most other countries have really ignored it. Can you describe how religion comes into all of this? Because you could argue that when you've got the influx of millions of young men from lots of different backgrounds, from any context, there's always going to be a rise in crime, a rise in sexual assaults. So how does religion come into this situation? So it is a truism to say, yes, sexual violence is universal. It's also been with us as long as there have been men and women, and it will be with us as long as there are men and women. It's every culture, every society, every class. So I'm not making the claim that one particular religion or one particular set of men are responsible for sexual crimes against women. But in this particular moment, what we are seeing is men from Muslim-majority countries who, when they make their way to Europe, look at women through a different prism, mainly through the prism of their religion and their culture. And in their religion and culture, women and men are viewed differently, and women are seen, they're divided into good women and bad women. And good women are those who are obedient and submissive and who play by the honor code of their religion and their culture. Everyone else is considered a bad woman, particularly European women, white women, non-Muslim women. And so therefore the taking and they're seen as prey. And so in that sense, religion has a great deal to do with it. And some of these European leaders reached out to religious leaders, Muslim religious leaders, and said, look, there's this spike in sexual crime and it's committed mainly by these young men, Muslim men who are arriving from various countries. What is it that you can do to help us? And some of these religious leaders said, well, get the women out of sight, serve no alcohol, And then they proposed some punishments that are just simply inhumane and unhuman in Europe and everywhere. But at least in Europe, there's a sense that, you know, you don't castrate men and you don't behead them and you don't, you know, (laughs) some of the punishments that they were proposing are more in sync with what ISIS was doing. Can you talk about some of the experiences that you've had within these same communities? Because you were born in Somalia, you moved to the Middle East. Were women, for example, seen as second-class citizens? Was there oppression against girls and women when you were at school? Can you talk about some of these experiences within those communities? Absolutely, yes. I've written a couple of books on that, just describing the differences. What I experienced when I came to Europe and living there as a woman and the way in Europe, so my first place of experience was the Netherlands. Boys and girls are treated pretty much the same way. You're equal before the law and if there's any kind of violence against women, it's taken very, very seriously. But when I was growing up, life wasn't like that. You knew as a girl that uh, you had to live within this very narrow path that's called the honor code. And if bad things happen to you, if you were assaulted by men in the streets, on the way to school, on the way to work, on the way to the market, then that was in as your fault. You shouldn't have put yourself in that situation. And I don't remember men being reprimanded for that behavior. Yes, I do remember incidents where if, you know, a pretty wealthy, well-to-do, powerful female from a clan like that, that was powerful and wealthy, then the perpetrators would be hunted down and, again, they would be treated to punishments that are just unimaginable in cruel and unusual, I would say, in Europe. But that was very rare. It was much more common to blame the women. Are you seeing those similar experiences and those similar values that you witnessed when you were growing up in Somalia and in the Middle East being transitioned into Europe with this massive influx of migration into the continent? 
So what I'm seeing is when these men come in, they don't really transition that much. They are behaving in Europe the way they were behaving in Afghanistan and in Somalia and in Iraq and Syria and whatever the behavior was that wasn't condoned, but that also wasn't punished. So these men continue to behave in that way. What is surprising is the way the European authorities are reacting to it. This turning away and uh, basically abandoning not only the victims, but also because there is no deterrence mechanism in place, all women now pray and they, they, they are basically looking after themselves. And I interviewed a number of women in Sweden, in Germany, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, in the UK, and all of these women, each one of them says they've had some experience, some negative experience with immigrant men and that now they, they these women individually are changing their behaviors in a way that matches the context that I grew up in and the context where these men come from. In other words, as a woman, you're thinking twice before you get out of the house about what you wear, about where you are, who you are with, and they're going through a lifestyle change because it is the commonsensical thing to do. Why have European governments failed to protect women and girls in a way that perhaps 20 or 30 years ago they would have done? Has there been a big shift in attitudes towards women and violence? And why do European governments fail to do their job in protecting women and girls? So I spoke to some of these people in government. They wouldn't come out in the open. Very few of them will give me their name to put out in their positions of power. But it's a combination of immigration just has been mishandled and particularly immigration from Muslim-majority countries. They say that they're afraid of empowering the far-right and populist parties, to which I say, but if you do nothing, you're actually going to empower those parties, you understand. Well, they do understand that now. But then there's also this politically correct, moral relativist aura that's hanging over everything, where some of these politicians who are prepared to take action are afraid of ending their careers. Even researchers, you know, when I was looking for the data, I would talk to some of these researchers and say, well, the most important data points are missing. And they say, yeah, that means that's, your end, that's the end of your academic career if you start asking some of these questions. These are self-inflicted wounds. This is not inflicted on Europe by Muslims or immigrants or radicals of any kind. This is an implosion that's coming from within, a moral implosion, a cultural implosion, and it's coming from within. Have attitudes changed in the last 10 or 20 years? Have we always had this sort of cowardice or political correctness that has led to people getting away with this stuff? So I've seen three changes. One is a hardening of attitudes towards immigration and immigrants within the general population. So you're seeing more and more people vote for populist parties and far-right parties. That's one change. A second change is there's also a hardening of attitudes in those people who are too cowardly to address this issue, maintaining first they said there was no problem, and then when they couldn't look away and the, the, the scale of the problem just got bigger and more dramatic, then they come up with these, uh, well, sexual violence is uh, universal. It, it happens everywhere. Those types of dismissive responses. And then a general, oh, but look, there's nothing that we can do. We just have to resign ourselves to the situation. Seriously, some of the Swedish leaders have just put it that way. What can we do now? An attitude of just accepting and embracing incompetence. And then number three, I've also seen a change in the emboldening 
of the radical Islamists when it comes to Dawa, which is the proselytization, the spreading this, this idea that they own the place and that people should live according to their norms and values, but also the, the, the benefit they get from the threat of terrorism. They don't even have to actually commit a terrorist act. Just the mere threat of a terrorist attack has many of these European leaders avoiding the subject altogether and the Islamists expanding their influence in politics and within the immigrant communities. Why do you focus specifically on male Muslim violence? Your critics would argue that you're being Islamophobic or that you're targeting a specific group. So you look at sexual violence say, committed by white male Europeans in some of these countries that I study, and it sort of peters out uh, in, in terms of scale. Um, in the 1950s, 1960s, the emancipation of women, the changing in laws, and then the change in the way these young boys are raised. And so in many of these societies, young males have been taught to internalize, to respect the boundaries of women, if nothing else, at a minimum. So that's one change. A second change I've seen, and my colleague from the Netherlands, Ruth Koopmans, has done a fantastic research on this. He has noted that immigrants from non-Muslim societies into Europe and other places have in fact assimilated to these norms. So you look at the Sikh and Indian communities and Hindu communities in the UK, and they're much, they're assimilated to a point where they're in fact performing on so many different indicators much better than the native Brits. And you see this everywhere else, and he looks at Muslim minorities and they're not. And so if you're then getting, which is the situation of now, if you're getting large numbers of immigrants, hundreds of thousands, even millions of young men between the ages of 15 and 35, and they're coming from Muslim-majority countries, and the experience we have with the ones who are already here is that they're unassimilated largely, then I think it is a subject worth studying and talking about, and the consequences, unintended negative consequences of all of that, is something that governments should be addressing. And unfortunately, this is what some of the European researchers told me is career ending, that they, they couldn't, they wouldn't do it. Even journalists are too wary, too scared of doing it. But your career hasn't ended. So why do you think that is? I guess in the age of identity politics, I can hide behind my skin color and my gender and the fact that I'm an immigrant myself. And so I can say what you say uh, behind closed doors and perhaps what you think without having to worry about my career ending. And there have been many attempts not only to end my career, but also to end my life. And I've made a personal choice that I'm not going to be cowed by that. I also know that the, if we are cowed by this, you embolden the wrong people. You embolden the far right. You embolden the Islamists. You embolden these menacing young men who come from places where there is no art. These men are just as much victims in some ways. And, and these young men, I'm not saying we should ostracize them. I'm saying we should civilize them. I was reading a critical review of your book in the Evening Standard and they argued that you were using identity politics to target a specific group. In other words, you were using identity politics to target Muslim men who commit sexual assaults. Shouldn't you be treating those people as individuals? So what would you say to the argument that you're using identity politics? Well, then I would just say they haven't read the book because that's precisely what I'm doing. I treat them as individuals. 
and as individuals from particular countries and cultures, when they come into Europe and they start to behave in ways that in the context of Europe is unacceptable. It's a crime to rape women. It's a crime to assault them. I don't think you're doing that particular individual or those individuals any favors if you pretend as the Evening Standard writer does or reviewer that there is no issue. So I haven't read the review, but I would say this is just a repetition of that treadmill, that wheel of denial, that playbook of denial. That's just, I place a review like that within that playbook of denial. There's nothing to see here. Why do you think discussions around radical Islam, migration, sexual assault have de-escalated? And you may disagree with that, but I think that since 2015, since 2016, at the height of the migration crisis, we were talking about this a lot, but now it seems like a very, very low issue on the agenda in our discourse. Well, a number of things have happened, and I do agree with the de-escalation. First of all, I would say Brexit happened, which came as a shock to many Britons, but also to other Europeans, that if you allow these issues to go unaddressed, big bad things will happen. Some people saw Brexit as a bad thing. I did not. ISIS was defeated. Radical Islam in Europe has been with us for some time now, long enough for a lot of young people who are attracted to that particular utopia have come to realize that it is no utopia at all. There were a lot of young people who snuck out from the UK, Germany, France, the Netherlands, all of these European countries, the US, Australia, New Zealand, made their way to Iraq and Syria to be a part of the Romantic Caliphate. And it wasn't that romantic. Maybe... (laughs) The best argument against radical Islam was made by ISIS. What do you think the impact of the rise of the woke movement has been on our discourse about immigration and radical Islam? In one word, toxic. Just toxic. And they are to blame for a lot of the fear that now reigns among researchers and journalists and politicians. They are the ones who have been shutting up and shutting down debates by proclaiming that everyone is a racist or colonialist and spewing this uh, relativist agenda. And they're the ones who continue to promote this divisive ideology that you can only see people through their superficial identities such as skin color and gender. My skin color has been the most superficial, least important thing of, of my life experience. And that applies to so many people. But yeah, if you hype it up, and you create this situation of paranoia where anybody with a little bit of tint in their skin thinks that they're victims of something much more powerful than themselves, so they have no agency to do anything about their lives. And you are saying this to people who made their way in some of the most difficult treks uh, of our time, uh, trying to cross the Mediterranean, uh, overcoming all of these obstacles, overcoming civil strife, Uh, these terrible economies and once they make their way to a European country suddenly they are victims of racism and they can't take control of their lives that's the narrative Why are you not a hero to the woke left? I mean you argue for women's rights for minorities' rights shouldn't you be one of their icons one of their great feminist heroes? No, because I think I don't see structural racism or systemic racism, all that BS that they are on about I think the UK is the least racist country in the world along with the US and other Anglo-Saxon countries. I think that a lot of European countries have done their darnest best to give as much as many, spend as many resources as they can, not only on 
welcoming immigrants, but also trying to make them feel at home, but also sending GDPs, 0.7%, 0.8% of their GDPs to uh, developing countries to help those countries get out of poverty. So this whole narrative that we are now, uh, you know, immersed and simmering in racism and colonialism is just, it's BS. And I'm not pushing that narrative. And so I'm in their way. They don't like me. They hate me for that. Um, they call me all sorts of terrible names uh, that I don't care about anyways. Are you surprised that more feminists aren't with you? Because surely this should be their number one priority, protecting women and girls. But it seems to me that the rise of radical Islam and the immigration is very, very low on their agenda. Well, you have one set of feminists who've really achieved what their mission was, equality before the law, access to education, access to voting rights, all of these things. And I kind of feel like there's one set of feminists who are saying, job done, there's no more feminism needed except it isn't done then for immigrant women and women in developing countries. And then there is a set of feminists who, I think my friend Christina Summers calls them fainting couch feminists, uh, who are really in the grip of the most trivial things uh, that you've ever heard of. And, and these are paradoxically women uh, who are attending Ivy League colleges, who are very well to do, very comfortable. That's their daily lives. But on the other hand, they're claiming that uh, they're victims this way and the other. This whole victim thing is on fashion right now. And then I think there are feminists emerging who right now whose voices may not have been discovered or they haven't formed a movement yet. And I think there lies some hope for feminism. And this would come from European working class women and immigrant women. They are the ones like when I was doing the research for this book, it's those women who were saying things need to change. The only next step is for them then to find common ground and, and do this together. Because these are the challenges for women of our day. I would say the most pressing, not the only challenges, but the most pressing challenges. Does it frustrate you when people from Ivy League colleges claim that they're the most oppressed people in the world? They claim that they're victims of the patriarchy. When you yourself have been through some of the most awful experiences in Somalia, in the Middle East, and even in the Netherlands. So does it frustrate you when you hear that? It frustrates me and I don't want to, you know, project my problems and my experiences on other people. I totally understand that if you're growing up in a very, very comfortable situation in very, very free and wealthy countries, that the set of problems that you perceive are going to be very different if you come from Somalia or Afghanistan. I, I understand that. But I think some of the issues that they're pushing around, it's just decadence to a point. I, it's not even in literature. I mean, it's just so over there. They're claiming that they're not safe at Yale and at Harvard. These are some of the not only safest environments, but it's the environments that are just desired by. I mean, do you know how many human beings want to go there and get the sort of education that these institutions profile on people? And instead of taking advantage of those opportunities and obviously calling out people if they do wrong things, you are proclaiming that uh, it, it's not a safe space because there are microaggressions. What is a microaggression? They're just things I don't understand. English is not my first language. For people who don't know your story, and it really is a fascinating story, can you give people a brief outline of your experiences when talking about radical Islam in the West? Because you've had death threats, you've been in experiences in which your life was literally in danger. So can you give people a brief outline of your story of talking about Islam in the West. 
Speaking about Islam in the West, if anyone, not only me, anyone else who has done it, whether they are Muslim or not, they are encountered with threats by the most radical Islamists in the country, people who've drawn cartoons, uh, people who've shown cartoons. There's a teacher in France, who, he didn't draw the cartoons, he only showed it to his class, talking about freedom of speech. He gets beheaded. So these threats by Islamists to people they target specifically, like me, Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Or the general public to terrorize them into surrendering to their worldview. This is now something that I think we've come to live with. It would be horrific if we accepted it. I don't think we should accept it. I think we should fight it. And then there is the experience of just being a Muslim woman. And that has nothing to do with terrorism. It has nothing to do with radical Islam. It's just the position of being a Muslim woman is that you are subordinate. And you are subordinate to your male guardians, your father, your husband when you're married off. Uh, and I'm not saying every Muslim girl is married off. I'm not saying every husband, Muslim husband or Muslim father is uh, violent or terrible or oppressive. But it is the religion that permits, endorses, and sometimes requires that women be treated in ways that are oppressive, yeah. When did we lose our perspective in the West on these issues of what real danger and real patriarchy is? There are different people who will give you different answers. Some people will say after 1989, because the threat of the Soviet Union sort of disappeared and then there was this sense of complacency. Others will say when Christianity disappeared, because you need, if there is a void, something will fill it. And when Christianity faded, as it's still fading in most Western societies, then that void is filled by postmodernist romantic notions like this critical justice theory, critical race theory, all of this nonsense that we're seeing now. There may be some truth to that. Affluence itself, honestly, it's probably a combination of all of that. And that makes it then for our adversaries, in this case, a very potent religious ideology like Islam, but also uh, the Communist Party of China and its ideology. Yes, a weakened Russia, but still a Russia that is bitter about being defeated. It then makes it very, very easy for those adversaries to exploit the weaknesses that we've created and the voids that are in place. How did this book come about? Why did you write this book on immigration and Islam into the West? What was the reason behind that? 
The reason behind it was after several conversations about this topic, people just talking to me about, hey, this is what's going on. And my response being over a number of years, my response being, well, why don't you... I'm not a member of parliament in Holland anymore. I really don't have any formal institutional position in Europe. Why don't you just do it? Or why don't you get this person to do it or that institution to do it? And the answer was uniform, can't. It's a career-ending act. And, and I thought, but someone has to do it. And then the whole Me Too thing came about. And I thought, okay, that's going to... All these women will stand up and say, and now it's not just these powerful Hollywood men and women who are embroiled in this, uh, we're actually going through something way more dramatic than that. That is life-threatening. And again, it wouldn't happen. Me too stopped rights, I think, with Tariq Ramadan. And again, somewhere in the upper class, middle class, echelons of Europe, when it made its way. Um, and then I thought, yeah, I I'm going to do it. I have nothing to lose. In the past, you've used some pretty extreme language when talking about Islam versus the West. You've talked about war, you've talked about a clash of civilizations. Do you think that language is still appropriate today? Well, I think a lot of what I said and wrote was taken out of context. If you go back to the interviews, you go back to the essays, articles, and so on, you will see that there is nothing of this. I'm not warmongering and calling for the extermination of Muslims. That's not what I'm doing. I'm constantly making a distinction between ideas, sets of beliefs, religion, and the coherent set of values that the Islamists have put together as a program, political program, versus Muslims who are as diverse as can be. And I, and I conclude, yes, that if that program is implemented, then we're going to get something like ISIS. And that happened exactly. I wasn't the only person saying it. A lot of people were saying that who were all dismissed as and smeared as warmongers and bad people. But when ISIS came along and they acted on that program, America and her allies went out and said, we've got to destroy this force. This is an evil force. And so it, it's not a conclusion that I reached. It was just based on the program that they were promoting. They said if they ever came to power, this is how they would behave. They would behead the unbelievers. They would enslave the women. And they did that. You've talked in the past about your experiences moving to the Netherlands and just how extraordinary you found it, just how much you valued Western values of liberty and freedom. Do you think we're losing those values? We're not losing. It depends, you know, some, some mornings you wake up and you see something and you think, oh my gosh, we're losing it. And then other mornings I see something that cheers me up. Yesterday I found in my inbox that very large majorities of the American public, once they got acquainted with critical race theory, reject it. And so in that sense I think, oh, then we're not losing it. Actually, we shouldn't be complacent, but we're still, the majority of the population is sane. And I was in the UK uh, a few weeks ago and I left actually feeling this is an incredible place, and if we're going to need a leader of the free world, maybe it will be the UK after Brexit. And then the process that led up to Brexit, where it was, oh my gosh, it's the end of the world, and it really wasn't the end of the world. For UK, it's the beginning of a new era, and I'm very, very optimistic about that. And so I think, no, we're not losing these freedoms, but it's unfortunate that we also have members of our elites who are prepared not only to be complacent and decadent and corrupt, but also who would, for short-term gain, 
collude with our adversaries and then try to package that as something great. And that's how you lose freedom. I mean, you don't need for armies to march in. One of the interesting things about your book is that it was delayed by the pandemic. So can you talk about how COVID-19 has impacted your book, but also how it's impacted sexual violence in Europe? If you were publishing a book at that time that wasn't about COVID, then uh, you wouldn't get any kind of publicity for the book. And I felt that this was a subject that needed some very serious debate and some very serious media attention, particularly in Europe. COVID-19 also hindered book promotion. I would be in several of these countries discussing and debating the subject of the book, and that was not possible. Then, because of the lockdown, a lot of the encounters between native women and immigrant women simply wasn't happening. I've been following it closely and there have been incidents like the one in Italy where the nurse who comes from, I think she was at a hospital attending to COVID patients and on her way home at the bus stop she gets raped by a man from Senegal. So some of these things continued but it wasn't on the same scale as before COVID. But I'll tell you from a policy perspective one thing that made an impression on me was Every time we talked about two European leaders, you actually can't do something about borders and about law enforcement and about the assimilation process of immigrants who refuse to assimilate. They would put their hands up in the air and say, we can't do that because of our liberal values and because of the laws that are in place. And then lockdown came and it was, well, all of that was set aside. All of those freedoms were set aside because of the pandemic. I think it's a very interesting question to look into how many lives were claimed by COVID, which is incredibly huge compared to the lives that were claimed by sexual violence. But when it comes to how people's lives were changed and constrained, then the impact that immigration has had on women and on the working class people, compare that to the impacts that COVID has had And why is it then these governments are still unwilling to do very much about this? You talked previously about Swedish politicians who basically said that we've got to accept this situation and that there's nothing we can do about this. And you've also talked about assimilation. So what is your solution to this? How do we resolve this? Because when you've got millions of young men who perhaps don't share our values, it's not that easy just to say to them, you've got to become like us or you've got to become Western. So how do you do that? What I'm seeing in Denmark and in Austria, and then in a smaller way in some other countries, but I think Austria and Denmark are are really the big ones. What they're doing is they're tying together immigration policy and integration policy, integration slash assimilation together and discrimination. So uh, the, the general population is not allowed to engage in discrimination against immigrants, people of color, you name it. And when they do that and it's proven in a court of law, they're punished for that. And even if it's not in a court of law. But they're talking about borders and border control and the selection of immigrants, which is what's missing in the whole immigration question is people are coming in large numbers from God knows where and they're coming in and they're claiming asylum. Asylum laws weren't designed for that. And the European leaders are saying there's nothing that we can do if they're here and they've claimed asylum. And so then then you get this, what I call the misunderstanding game between those people who are pro-immigrant and those who are anti-immigrant and nothing changes. 
And then, of course, the assimilation process, which requires, yes, it requires a certain amount of coercion from the government. You've got to show up for classes, but classes have to be provided. If you don't show up for classes, then there are consequences. And so in Denmark, for instance, they give them this financial allowance and other benefits, and you will be, that will be lowered or cut off entirely, or if you, after a certain time, you, you can and will be deported, your residence permit revoked. So there are ways of doing things to compel those individuals who resist integration. There are ways of compelling them to go through with the program or face the consequences. You've talked in the past about one of the problems being that people are terrified of being called an Islamophobe or being called racist and therefore others are allowed to get away with absolute awful crimes because of this. So how do we get around that issue of people being terrified of being called a racist or an Islamophobe? If you're in a position of power and you say, I can't do my job, I will not do my job because I'm terrified of being called a racist, then get out of the way, resign because you're, you're not doing your job and you don't want to do it, but you're still occupying that position of power. It should have gone to someone else. That would be the rational thing to do, the generous thing to do, the moral thing to do. But I think also for more people who, who are really good people and who don't want to be racist, I think they have to wake up to the reality that this is a cudgel. It's a tool that is being used to promote a certain agenda. It, it's not about the accusation or the accused or his or her behavior. Anybody who disagrees with it, regardless of their skin color, regardless of whether they're racist or not, they're just going to be called racist because it's an effective tool. It makes people, it makes white people shrink away uh, from an accusation like that. And it's, uh, it's crazy. I mean, it's 99.99% it's of the time, it's not true. In your book, you've talked about some of the many problems of mass migration into Europe, particularly on women and girls. But can we focus on some of the positives? Has assimilation worked? Are we going towards a direction of assimilation or towards division? I think for many people it's towards assimilation. I see so many hopeful signs. So in the 1990s, the main conversation was about, but look, it doesn't matter how much you assimilate, you will never be represented in society. And now you see higher levels of representation. Look at your own country. You know, the three most prominent members of cabinets are immigrants. Krishi Sunak, Sajid Javid, uh, Priti Patel. And I know there are others, but like these are... Talking of representation is just a very powerful position. And that then also, if you look at corporations, if you look at the wider society in academia, I see more and more of that type of representation in every country that has allowed a large number of immigrants to come in. So you can say to the immigrant, it pays off to assimilate. You will make more money. You will live in a bigger house, in a better neighborhood. It's better for your children. It's greater for social mobility. And look at all of these faces in, in public life who have made it. And you see this everywhere. So I think that's a big deal. And then I also see developments like Catherine Birbal Singh's school, where Catherine has defied the unions, all of the, what I call the integration industry that take taxpayer money and say that they are engaged in the exercise of assimilation, but they are not. And so when I love it when people like Catherine take initiative and do it their way and, and then show that it can be done. And so that is, I'm just using that one school to show 
these are it's the Catherines of this world who should be in charge of the assimilation process. And every time you see a pilot project or a successful project, then you try and replicate that. And I'm seeing more of that everywhere. I'm also seeing more intermarriage, more mixed relationships. Assimilation is happening, but obviously it doesn't make the headlines. I think that you're a perfect example of someone who has assimilated into the West. You were born in Somalia, you grew up in the Middle East, and then you moved to the Netherlands in 1992. And now look at you, you're one of the biggest voices for women's rights in the Western world. You've sold many copies of your books. You're a media star. So can you talk about your experiences assimilating into the West and how that worked? I had options. One option was I would just go and do what my father told me to go and do, which was go to Canada and live with the man that he chose for me. And, you know, that was an option. And I didn't want to do that. I went to the Netherlands and in the beginning, I thought I could get on because I spoke English and I was told, no, you actually do have to learn the local language. And again, it was clear that I could go to Canada and live with that man or learn Dutch. I learned Dutch. <laughs> and as I was doing that, I started to find jobs, cleaning, factory work, where you make a little bit of money, but you're sort of on a treadmill because it really doesn't do much for you. And I thought, is this, I was in my 20s, is this how I want to spend the rest of my life? And no, and then I started looking into higher education and I saw some of the work that you had to do. Did I, do I really want to go to university or not? If I want to go to university, here are the steps that I need to take. And I understood that, or I could stay a cleaner, but I thought I had more potential. And so I chose to do the hard work. And again, not none of this on my own. I was getting a ton of help from local people who were working at the Asylum Seeker Center, who were working for whom I had translated, people whom I met. They were helping me, guiding me through some of these choices. And so you're not doing it alone, but my experience was a positive one. And when I was confronted with the hardships, the homesickness, the emotional, you know, like you, you're in a place that you don't really understand and they don't understand you. That's very, very hard and it's very, very challenging. But uh, there's, uh, if you resist it, it becomes even harder. And again, there was always that. You, I could always go to Canada and live with that man. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's up to you to push. And sometimes I think it's, it's easier to push through something than to, to resist it. And this is, I've seen lots and lots and lots of immigrants make the exact same choices and they're all very successful and they all are where they want to be and are very happy. Did you find that there was lots of examples of human kindness when you came into the Netherlands? Did people integrate you into their friend groups? How did you assimilate? How did it work? What happened? Kindness, generosity, they embraced me. I'm talking about, again, some of the employees at the Asylum Seeker Center where I lived. People from the village nearby who came to volunteer to teach us Dutch. Uh, and I made friends with them. Uh, some of these people were working in churches, and so they were doing it because it was part of their church program. And they're friends to this day. They are my friends to this day. And then when I went to university, I made, I made friends, you know, fellow students. I established what I call an alternative network of an intimate circle of people who took me into their homes and made me a part of their lives and whose friendship I embraced. And then from there, it became easier and easier. And then it was the same when I came to the US. There were a lot of people, which was a very different experience, by the way, because I didn't come as an asylum seeker, as an asylum seeker. But there were people who said, I know your story and I love what you've done. I now want to help you navigate America. 
And when I exchange stories with immigrants, regardless of where they come from, especially Muslim women, this is the kind of thing we talk about. It's not just that you are protected by the law. Very often, the protections by law don't even emerge. I was talking to Yasmin Mohammed, who's a Canadian, and who, she was explaining to me how the Canadian law and the Canadian society didn't protect her. But it's the friends, it's the alternative network that you establish for yourself. That's really where the, the protection lies, and you just have to come to trust these people. When you came into the Netherlands, what parts of society did you find most extraordinary? What surprised you most that we today, growing up in the West, would take completely for granted? Probably the first thing was just how safe and carefree women were in the public space in Europe. And maybe deep down that's why I wrote this book, because that is something that has changed dramatically in just three decades. So this is only in 30 years. When I come first and I'm in Germany and I'm in the Netherlands and later on I'm moving around, I'm just amazed by just how carefree these women are. And it is day and night and it's regardless of what they're wearing or not wearing. I remember taking trains at 1 a.m. in the morning from Rotterdam to Leiden and not encountering anything unusual or bad or threatening. And if anything of the sort ever happened, it did come from immigrant men. And so the white locals were just minding their own business. And I think that was quite amazing. And, and that has changed, has changed in Europe. And unfortunately, it looks like even some of the locals are joining in on the assaults and the misconducts. But that was one thing that amazed me. I was amazed. I started asking people in the asylum seeker center, so you're giving us food and shelter and medical care. And what do you want in return? <laughs> and the answer was nothing. <laughs> and I would ask, well, how do you pay for all of this? <laughs> Taxpayer money. A functioning government was also an amazement. And that, for me, was the reason why I went to study political science. I really wanted to get it. How does it work? The predictability of society. I know now there's a great deal of talk about climate change, and climate change is, is a very important and very serious subject. But in the Netherlands, we would have the occasional flooding. It's six feet under sea level. I think one of the biggest threats that's really accepted and ingrained in Dutch society is the threat of water. Sometimes there would be a great deal of rainfall and there'd be flooding and I would turn on the television and people would be blaming members of the government and I would think, how can they blame the government? This is, it's, it's from God. How can they? So I had come from a society, a societies where natural disasters were a curse from God, you know, because we were behaving badly or something like that. It wasn't a policy matter. <laughs> One of the things that you talk about in your book is the rise of right-wing extremism. So what has the impact been of the migration crisis on extremism in Europe? And have right-wing groups taken over this issue and made this even more toxic to talk about? So as a student of political science, there is right-wing and there is far-right extreme right-wing. You have to separate the two. The Tory party is a right-wing party, but um, the BMP is far-right. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so the, the right, and I, need, I myself need some experience in encounters with the far-right. I don't think I've ever encountered them. But the far-rights, again, as a student of political science, all across, particularly Northern Europe, were a very small fringe group. They were feared, they were remnants of the Nazi, Mussolini, Franco period. They want mainstream movements 
in the 90, in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, they want that. But it, again, like the, the word racist, it's a very powerful insult to be called right-wing or, or far-right-wing, extreme right. So the, the teeny tiny party in the Netherlands that represented this group, when I went to look into what kind of threats they represented to me as a person, I wasn't impressed. They just looked ridiculous. They sounded ridiculous. They didn't have a majority. And I just thought that is just, uh, it, it's, it, it, it was more real. It was entertaining. And then as more immigrants came in and negative consequences of immigration followed, more and more people in working class neighborhoods started to vote for those far right parties. And they did it as a protest vote because the labor parties, that's the social democratic parties, the center left parties, ignored those working class people's problems and what they were facing. That's the only rational explanation that I can find for the rise of right-wing parties, extreme right-wing parties and populist parties. Individuals who, who form a party and who say, I will solve the immigration problem and then get votes. And even the people who are voting, when you go and interview them, they know that the BNP is not going to solve the immigration problem. But it's a way of trying to catch the attention of the Labour Party, the established parties. Have these far-right groups made it even more difficult to talk about this topic? Yes, they have, because they have empowered the people within centre-left parties who have always wanted to look away from this or who really misunderstood the issue at hand. They fantasised about the immigrants as being the new proletariat, the new working class, the, and ignored the profound cultural and religious differences that the immigrants bring, especially those from Muslim countries. We've talked in this interview exclusively about Europe, but you're currently in the US. What has been your experiences in the United States and are there similar problems going on there? There are similar problems going on, but then because of America's history as an immigration country, the way these issues are framed and the stakeholders in the, within the debate are different. So America's immigration system has always been selective. And not, people don't shy away from selecting and saying we want the best and the brightest from the world to come, and, to, come to America and make their home. You can't say that in Europe. You'll be considered to be a selfish bigot if you say something like that. <laughs> I think it's I think it's very rational. <laughs> but in America that's where it starts. And then you start to get into the narrow interest groups where some people, the farmers will say, I want my crops picked. And so that is for me the most important group that I want to bring in. I don't care about their college diploma. But Silicon Valley will say, No, 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 I, we want the people from uh, the universities in India. And so you see how you have different stakeholders with different interests, but the issue is not about having immigrants or not having immigrants, it's what type of immigrant. When uh, Trump came along and he started to have his uh, trade wars and tariffs and, uh, you know, he said, I represent blue collar workers, then it was about what is in the interest of that group of people. Well, if immigration is, they're seen, immigrants are seen to be taking their jobs, then let's build a wall. But again, if you study the conversation, conversations on immigration in America, they are very, very different. And because of its selective nature, immigrants tend to assimilate. Lots of immigrants arrive speaking English. When I went to Holland, I didn't speak a word of Dutch. Immigrants who go to Germany 
Sweden, Denmark, I mean, think about it. You come from the Middle East and South Asia, you don't speak those languages. You don't even know they exist. And <laughs> In order to have any kind of social mobility, you're required to learn those languages. And then in um, Europe, they have these ready-made welfare states. The buzz in Europe is, if you're having a hard time in Afghanistan, you come to Europe, you will have free food, free shelter, free healthcare, free schooling. And I think in America, that's not the case. Thank you so much for joining us. That was absolutely brilliant. Stephen, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.